Well, friends, a few days ago, I had the pleasure of being invited by one of my own dear neighbors uh, to join her for this art exhibit that was happening literally right around the corner from here. Now, my friend Monica, I've known her for about two years now, is a very strong woman, to say the least. I know a couple of you know her personally, and you know that she is tough as nails. She's a fighter. And yet she's also very relational. She loves to invite people into her own life and just be very vulnerable as, as she then shares her story with pretty much everybody that she meets. Now, again, I've known her for the better part of two years. She's a wonderful artist, and I've had the pleasure of seeing so many of her paintings just line the walls over at the Cries where I used to live a couple years ago. And so as I walked over to the Riverview's art space, where she had a whole art exhibit going on, I already knew in large part what to expect. Her art is not very contemporary or even safe, to be quite honest with you. But as soon as I walked into that art space, there was my friend waiting for me with her little tiny dog next to her. <laughs> Somehow the dog got inside the building. I don't know how. But as soon as I stepped inside, she ushered me over to the back hallway where they had put her paintings away. And there they were, 10 evocative paintings of various women in bold blue, teal, green, and reddish tones, all representing women who have been beaten down by abuse, domestic abuse, verbal, physical even, spiritual abuse. And the one that stood out to me the most was simply entitled, The Silent Witness. The Silent Witness. Now this modern fauvist painting, that's what we call this kind of art, <laughs> put forth a woman with bloodshot red eyes. A white flower denoting former innocence adorned her hair, and blues composed her face and her figure, and those blues just melded into the background of the darker shades of aquamarine and navy blue behind her. Something was not right. Her hands were painted, politely folded in front of her, seemingly consoling what little dignity she had left. And a small cage was placed over her, eye, uh, over her lips, rather, painted red, signifying the very prison bars that she was forced to hide behind. No talking for her, just watching, silently witnessing the most jarring of emotional and domestic abuse. Now, truth be told, and I have explicit permission to share this, this is my friend Monica's own story. She is one of our neighbors here. She is an ex-pastor's wife who suffered greatly for years and years, silently watching. And she insisted that I share her story with you this morning, especially in light of the passage that I had the privilege of sharing with her just a few days ago from Exodus 5, verse 22 through 630. Because the men and women that we're about to read up here in Israel were in a remarkably similar situation. They were people in slavery, beaten down by Pharaoh's own taskmasters, but here in our passage, there is redemption for this kind of brokenness. Here in our passage, we see God, the Lord, pursue this people in the midst of their desert wasteland. How so? 
Well, he pursued them by entering into their trauma and betrothing himself to them by his covenantal, undying, loyal, husband-like love. So let's go ahead now and turn our attention to the reading of God's holy word, beginning in Exodus 5, verse 22. The word of the Lord says this, Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, Now, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out from his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. And I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. And I will bring you, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of, please catch this, their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel, they've not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. These are the heads of the fathers' houses. They're the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel. Hanok, Palu, Hatzaron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben. The sons of Simeon, Yemuel, Yamin, Ohad, Yachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of the Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations. Gershon, Kohath, Merari, the years of the life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shemei, by their clans. The sons of Kohath, Amram, Itzar, Hebron, and Uziel, the years of the life of Kohath being 133 years. The sons of Merari, Mali, and Mushi. These are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amram took as his wife Yechabed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses, the years of the life of, the life of Amran being 137 years. 
The sons of Issa are Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri. Sons of Utziel, Ishael, Elzaphan, and Sithri. Aaron took as his wife Elisheba, the daughter of Amenadab, the sister of Nashon, and she bore him Nadab, Avihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. The sons of Korah, Asir, Elkanah, and Aviasaf, these are the clans of the Korahites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Puthiel, and she bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites by their clans. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt. This Moses and this Aaron. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? Friends, this is the very reading of God's holy, unchanging, infallible, inerrant, inspired word. Let's pray. Jesus, we ask that as we attend your word, that our hearts will be summoned to the very courts of heaven. We ask, O oh God, that as we read, that the Holy Spirit would illuminate this to our own eyes and our own ears, that we would be a people who are not deafened or blind to everything that you say in your word through this passage. We pray, O oh God, that we would have eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to fully know and love and adore you all the more because of what you will declare over us this morning. Jesus, use this passage to minister to us, to bind up the brokenhearted, and to heal us by your love, your love that is found in your arms. Pray all this in your holy name. Amen. Well, it doesn't take a genius to see that we certainly have a lengthy passage this morning, don't we? But I'm convinced that there is a simple and singular unifying theme running throughout all of it. And it's this, that God enters into our trauma and betroths himself to, his, uh, to himself by his covenantal, undying, loyal love. And the scripture presents this same theme of betrothal, even him entering into our trauma through three different perspectives. First, Moses' vision in the first few verses. Second, God's eternal vision, the crux of the entire passage. And thirdly, our own finite vision as a response to these same things. Now we first see Moses' finite vision made known to us in Exodus 5, verses 22 through 6, verse 1. Last week, Pastor Clayton had shared with us the story of what had happened when Moses finally got the nerve to go speak to Pharaoh. We read about what happened, and he illustrated it so well for us. See, Moses and Aaron had done as the Lord had commanded. At first, they actually addressed the Egyptian tyrant with the very same word of God, nothing more, nothing less. They said this, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But you know Pharaoh's response. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? 
I do not know the Lord. Moreover, I will not let Israel go. Sadly, Aaron and Moses at this point responded then out of fear. How? By both taking away from God's word and adding to it. See, they didn't tell Pharaoh that God would indeed release Israel. It was already done. It was guaranteed. And by the way, that his firstborn son, uh, Israel, would be freed, and Pharaoh's firstborn son would actually be killed if they refused to let him go. They didn't tell him that. And on top of that, Moses and Aaron added to God's word by pleading with Pharaoh, insisting that it would only be for a three days journey, and on top of that, saying that God would be angry with them and that he would cause pestilence to fall upon them if he didn't comply with this God of Israel. This, in sum, was not what God had commanded them to say verbatim. And so, of course, Pharaoh didn't listen to their authority. After all, who were Moses and Aaron that he should obey their voice, the voice of mere men? Well, in response, Pharaoh commanded then his taskmasters to make the lives of the Israelites a living hell. And I say that soberly. He refused to give them the straw that was necessary to make bricks for the Egyptians. Their spirits were broken. The slavery was harsh. And furthermore, the Israelites as a people were then scattered, divided, and their wills were one by one conquered by this devilish enemy, Pharaoh. And the Egyptian taskmasters went further. They went out of their way to then verbally lacerate and physically beat the Israelite foremen, the foremen who were the leaders of the people of Israel. Church, we would do well to actually call our sins by name what they are. This sin of Pharaoh was nothing less than psychological abuse against God's people. See, rather than going against the, or going after, rather, the whole people of Israel, the Egyptians strategically, purposefully went after their federal heads where it hurt the most, their representatives, their managers, the foremen, as the ESV puts it. But why? Why? Because slavish compliance was the goal. See, when Pharaoh, from Pharaoh's perspective, the most expedient way to break the will of the whole people was to go right after their leaders. And within one day, one day, the morale of the entire people was shattered. They had no willpower to move on. And the worst of it was that they now questioned God and his goodness. Even Moses, their chief representative, doubted then the goodness of God. He came to God in prayer after what had happened, and he couldn't even, please catch this, he couldn't even invoke his personal covenantal name, Yahweh, the Lord. He couldn't even say it. All that Moses could cry out was not even creator God, or God Almighty. Given all that their earthly masters had done to them, after all that chaos that they had, in, that had ensued, after all that Israel had suffered, all that Moses could now utter was Adonai, Master, 
master. But while Pharaoh had brought hell to earth, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God was about to bring heaven down to earth for them and for their good. The word of God says this, the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, who? He will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. And so from this passage, we learn that Moses's finite vision couldn't see a way through the thick of this. But God's eternal vision was about to unfold before the sight of all the nation of Israel. But God didn't stop there. See, the Lord continued on by making the most striking, loving promise that we have seen thus far in the entire book of Exodus. He betrothed himself to his people. The Lord pronounced over Moses not once, not twice, not even three times, but four times his divine authority over all things. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. And in the midst of each of these declarations, he told two stories of his divine sovereignty. Now, the first story was that he was the very same one who had established his covenant of grace and given it to Israel's forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He had given his name El Shaddai, which means God Almighty, promising to them the land of Canaan. Surely God All-Powerful had not given up on his promise. Rather, he was about to deliver his people, Israel, the powerless. He had heard their groaning. He had seen the affliction and the abuse. And he remembered his covenant. Now, the second story was a love story. Hear these words again, right from the scripture. I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Do you hear the roaring, ferocious love of the Lion of Judah? Though Pharaoh had stretched out his supposedly godlike arms against the people of Israel, the true God of Israel, the true all powerful one, was about to save them and protect them from harm and stretch out the other arm against Egypt to bring great seismic titanic justice. With one arm, God would reach out and show mercy and kindness to a broken people. But with the other arm, he would reach out and exact judgment and vengeance on a brutal people. God would make known in this way his divine peace, his promise, as he declared that Israel was his precious possession, his people. He loved them. 
But deeper still, the Lord entered into his people's trauma. He didn't shy away from it. Just like he did with Adam and Eve in the garden, he entered into the trauma and lovingly betrothed himself to them. Witness here his betrothal in the desert. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. Friends, these I will statements are more than mere empty promises of man. These were covenantally bound vows of betrothal purposed for the spiritual seed of Abraham with nothing short of marriage on his mind. So when God said, I will bring you, I will deliver you, I will redeem you, I will take you, I will be your God, he knew exactly what he was doing. See, later on in Exodus 12, he made for his bride the finest of all wedding feasts in the form of the Passover meal. And later on in Exodus 20, he gave them their rules of engagement, literally, (laughs) in the Ten Commandments. So friends, we must understand that we as Christians, though, are also beneficiaries of the same covenant of grace. Just as God brought the Israelites out from under the burdens of their harsh taskmasters, he in Christ invites us who believe in him to come to him and find our rest. He invites us to lay down our burdens and our troubles at his feet. He invites us to know the freedom found only in him. And just as God would deliver his people in the old covenant from slavery to the Egyptians, he in the new delivers us now from every enslavement to our sins, known and unknown alike. As he redeemed his people with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment, he in the same way has scooped us up into the arms of his safety, called out our oppressors by name, and called us to be his own. See, just as he pursued and found his betrothed, her spirits broken and utterly unable to trust at that point, having been bruised, used, and abused in the exact same way he pursues each one of us here at City Presbyterian. Now, we know that Moses certainly had finite vision. It's pretty obvious, especially from the text. He often kicked against the goads with God. And we know that the Lord has eternal vision. He knows best. He knows the end from the beginning. But do we also recognize that each one of us, as we turn especially to our point of application, each one of us, just like Moses and Aaron, try to navigate our own life decisions with that same kind of finite vision that Moses and Aaron did? And we see this human condition all throughout verses 9 through 30. See, the last part of our passage, especially the genealogy that we read earlier, it it may seem random and even a bit detached from the rest of the narrative, right? Like, why is this even in here? Why all these Hebrew, like the fun Hebrew names? Might be fun to pronounce or even mispronounce. (laughs) But why is it there? Well, it's here in order to prove to us that God is creatively, powerfully at work throughout the ages. See, from Levi all the way down to Moses and Aaron, God used broken people, doubt-filled people, and people who had not been heard to make known to them the safety found in his arms. 
So the main point of verses 9 through 30, as long as that section may be, is simply this. It is that God is a speaking God. Hebrews 1, later on in the scripture, tells us as much. It tells us that he has indeed spoken to us through the prophets of the Old Covenant, but primarily and chiefly through Christ as we see him revealed in both his incarnation and through his word. But we are often so hard of hearing the voice of Jesus, aren't we? See, God used a mere man, Moses, Aaron, people like them, in years past, to convey the glories of God's safety and his pursuing love But even then, his own people did not listen. Just like when Jesus came in the fullness of time, many of them did not listen to him. But why didn't they listen to Moses and Aaron in our context? Because they were so broken and beaten up. How could they see past the brokenness, the pain? They were terrified. They were scared. They were afraid for their lives. They saw no way forward, even though God had flat out told them explicitly the way forward out of Egypt. They had finite vision, and they didn't think that God's way would work. Friends, we so often do the same thing in our own lives, if we're being honest. Even when God has clearly given us his directive through his own word for our good, how often do we go to scripture to glean from it everything that we need for life and godliness? Well, a few days ago, my dog, on a much lighter note, (laughs) my dog Baxter, (laughs) no, there's a lot of fans here. (laughs) I feel like he might be like the, yeah, just the uh, the pet, literally, for all of our church here. My dog Baxter discovered this new trick, how to purposely get stuck underneath the kitchen table. (laughs) And he thinks he's hilarious, just saying. But he figured out that if he gets purposely stuck, I have to go over to the other side and, and pull him out, quite literally. See, every single day, he likes to go underneath that table, and he's done it for years because he just like, he loves like sitting right next to my side, just right there, right next to me, laying down for a few hours at a time as I'm working there. But lately, instead of you know, doing the obvious thing and scooting backwards out of the table, crawling out the way he came, he entertains himself now by army crawling forward as far as he can to the very end of the table. And then he just waits there with a huge smile on his face and a wagging tail, waiting for me to go walk all the way around, literally pick him up, all 90 pounds, and pull him out from the backside of the table up against the wall, carry him out the opposite way that he came. Friends, we often play this same kind of help me, I'm stuck game with God, don't we? See, rather than trusting in his goodness, his character, and his everlasting faithfulness, and obeying his clear, even the clearest commands in Scripture, we so often seek to forge our own paths forward in our decision-making. Due to our own limited, finite vision and lack of faith, when life becomes difficult, it is so easy for us to just keep moving forward to the point where we end up getting stuck. And all we can say is, help me, God, I'm stuck. See, when we don't heed God's clear directives in his holy word, and pay attention to his kind providence, and discern the mind of Christ, and be led by the Spirit, we will get stuck. And when we are stuck, like Baxter underneath the table, 
or like a car spinning its wheels in the mud around fall time. We try to pull ourselves forward with everything, every strategy that might feel familiar to us already. But we know that these things often don't work in the end. We got stuck for a reason, right? Friends, we are so prone to continue onward in the same paths that we've explored in years past, seeking after safety and comfort in what is already familiar to us, rather than being intentional to hear and listen to the voice of our good and gracious Shepherd King who knows us and who holds our frames together and who wants to lead us through each of life's various valleys. But even in our obstinance, God has not left us without witness. Witness to his sovereign plan, his redemption, the safety plan, the security that's in him and him alone. See, in his kindness, he has given us divine, his divine utterance through the mouths of prophets and priests such as Moses and Aaron of old, the sons of Levi. And in the fullness of time, he gave to us his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to show us the only way, the only way to true everlasting safety and undying eternal peace in the arms of the Father. See, with outstretched arms upon the cross, Jesus showed both that divine mercy for us, his people, like he did with Israel, but also complete and utter justice against each one of our sins. Will we trust in this Savior's love? Will we be a people who trust in his love, not just as individuals, but as a church plant here in downtown Lynchburg? As we navigate all of the formative decisions that lie in front of each one of us as individuals. As we begin to wrap up, then, I want to draw our attention back to my friend Monica's story, one of our neighbors here. See, as I walked with her down the hallway of that art space to the back room where they put all of her paintings, I had the joy of sharing with her this exact same message of the gospel of Christ's healing love and the safety that is only found in him. Yes, trauma and abuse are real. They're vicious. They are long-lasting in their scope and in their effect. But they are not the end. See, for all of those who are in Christ, you and me, we are seen. We are adored. We are treasured as the bride in waiting that we are. Sister, brother, do you see yourself in that light? See, we are promised the heavenly feast ahead of us. The trials that you face are not the end. We are promised a marriage supper with the Lamb himself who was slain for us. And for all of us in Christ, we have been predestined from before time immemorial for this very end to dine with our Savior who loved us and who gave himself for us. But know this. <clears throat> The vocal betrothal of our God to us happened while Israel was yet still in a desert wasteland. Our marriage in the future, especially as we look to it, our marriage to Christ at the last is indeed guaranteed. And it will be far more merry and bright than the best of all Christmas mornings ever could be. 
Can you envision this now? Do you long for it now? If so, know that the betrothal of God and his walking with us <clears throat> until that final glorious day have already been communicated in as much as he wants us to hear through his word, even while we are yet still sojourners in this life. So, in the words of 2 Corinthians 4, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light, light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. But the things that are unseen are eternal. So church, be reminded that God has vowed himself to you. He will not give up on you. He has never been afraid to enter into his people's trauma, and he's not afraid to enter into your own situation, whatever it might be. And in the fullness of time, Christ displayed this exact covenantal love in the offering up of himself for us, in entering into our world, in his suffering on our behalf, in his atoning for our sins, in his sacrificial death, and, and, in his rising again for our justification. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Vast, unmeasured, boundless, free. He is our God. We are his bride. And soon, very soon, he will deliver you, dear friend, from every harm and trauma in this life and bring you safely into his own arms, especially to his own self. For he is our mighty fortress, the rock of our salvation, our righteousness by name, Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are truly forever good, faithful, long-suffering, so patient with us. We thank you, O oh Lord, for not ever discarding us, for never walking away, for not pushing us aside or saying this is too much. Rather, Lord, you pursue us in love. For Lord, you who began a good work will truly carry it all the way to utter and lasting completion in Christ Jesus. So Lord, we thank you for what you are doing in our lives as individuals, as a church here at City Presbyterian. And Lord, would you minister to us in this season of our church's life? Lord Jesus, we need you so, so deeply. And Lord, we thank you that your love is, as we sang last week, truly that deep, deep love of Jesus that meets us exactly where we're at. So do that for us, O oh Lord, now. Lift our spirits heavenward. Let us see with renewed vision the loving smile of you, our Father. And let us walk forward in faith, O oh Lord. We are yours, and you are our God. Amen. Let's go ahead and rise as we sing our last song.
there is. I'm like, there we go. Who, who needs the affirmation of faith, right? <laughs> Just teasing. We sure do. I sure do. <laughs> so as I turn there, Lord, uh, friends, rather, let's go ahead and read our Lord's words out loud together from Romans 8, verses 31 and following together. This is our hope. This is our assurance. This is the God in whom we trust together. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave 